0: This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here, host of Now with Dave Brown on AMI-audio. We want to keep you in the now with information on news, sports, politics, technology, all curated and presented by members of the blind and partially sighted community. And that community includes me. But we don't want to do all the talking. We want to hear from you. Do you have an opinion on something you saw in the news? Is something affecting your community? Now is your chance to be heard Listen to Now with Dave Brown wherever you subscribe to podcasts. I'm Juhitha Gupta, and this is The Pulse. I want you to close your eyes and remember a memory from childhood. It could be your first day at school, a family outing, or your first ever sleepover. Chances are you remember those occasions clearly or almost clearly. Our memories define us, who we are, our place in the world, and how we see ourselves in relation to others. Understanding how memories are formed, stored, and retrieved is fascinating to scientists and psychologists, of course, but naturally it's something that intrigues all of us. Memory retrieval is underpinned by a complex and poorly understood neural process, yet how we recall autobiographical events has significant impacts on our lives. Today, we discuss visual perspectives and autobiographical memory retrieval. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to the pulse on AMI Audio. My name is Juita Gupta and I'm the host of the program and I'd like to welcome you to the show today. We have a really exciting topic and an exciting guest to get to in just a moment, but I just want to remind you, as I do off the top of every program, that you can catch our coverage of the pandemic at ami.ca forward slash COVID-19. So if you want to get caught up with the latest segments from any of our daily shows, that being now with Dave Brown, Kelly and company, and of course, our coverage on The Pulse, you can find it all in one place. That's ami.ca forward slash COVID-19. For as long as I can remember, I've had two things said to me consistently. One, that I have the memory of a, that I have a memory like a steel trap, so I forget nothing. And the second is almost stemming from that, I've had a lifelong interest in psychology and how memories are formed, stored, and retrieved. And so I'm very excited to welcome to the program my guest today, who is Peggy St. Jacques, Assistant Professor at the Department of Psychology at the University of Alberta. Peggy directs the Memory in Events Lab. Peggy recently co-authored the paper How Visual Perception, How Visual Perspective Influences the Spatiotemporal Dynamics of Autobiographical Memory Retrieval. That's quite a mouthful. Peggy, welcome to the pulse. It's really great to have you on the program. Hi, it's it's so great to be here talking about my research. Yes, it is a fascinating line of work that you're doing. Uh, now, a lot of us are non psychologists and non scientists. So I'm going to start it simple and ask you to define spatiotemporal dynamics and autobiographical memory retrieval. What do those terms actually mean? Sure. Um, let's start with the second term. That's
1: a little bit easier to explain. Um, So by autobiographical memories, what we're talking about are a particular type of memory. So our memory actually can involve many different types, like memory for riding a bicycle, memory for facts, uh, our semantic knowledge. So what we're talking about with autobiographical memory is what most of us would think of, though, when we think of memory. So these are events from our personal past, so it could be something as insignificant as, you know, what you ate for breakfast this morning or a really important event from your personal past, like a wedding or a birthday
0: and so on. And spatial temporal dynamics. So what does that mean?
1: Yeah. So uh, what we know about when we retrieve autobiographical memories is that they um, they, they take a few seconds Um, So usually, you know, when we get a cue, when we're trying to think back to a particular memory, um, we might first need to kind of search for our memory and reconstruct it. So let's say I gave you a really neutral cue, like the word table, and I asked you, you know, think of a memory from your past related to that. Maybe you start to think of, you know, a a time where you bought a table and had to put it together, Um, but you need to first kind of find that memory. Um, and then once you've found a particular memory, then you can start to elaborate on it to put in all the, the rich details that is going to make you re-experience that memory. And so mm. in this particular study, we, what we wanted to do is to tease apart kind of those different aspects of the way that we remember.
0: Mm. And one of the things that is so intuitive to the way that we remember is the visual perspective. It's so uh, ubiquitous that I don't think a lot of us understand that there might be different visual perspectives when we experience the recall of a memory. What are the different ways in which we can remember?
1: Yeah, so it's it's so automatic to us. Um, but when we remember something, it always comes with a visual perspective. One perspective might that we call the own eyes perspective this is where you're kind of re-experiencing the memory again from your first person perspective. So from your own eyes, as most events are typically experienced, but we can also see ourselves sometimes in the memory. And that's what we call um, having an observer perspective. So this, I like to think of this as a difference between, you know, looking at a photo of yourself um, versus uh, adopting your own eyes. So sometimes you have photos of memories from your past where you're in the photo. So that's what we're talking about with the observer perspective.
0: I know that this, what I'm about to ask you is probably covered in a full-year psychology class, but bear with me and just try to explain to us what parts of the human brain are responsible for encoding, uh, storing memories, and of course, for retrieval.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, we've learned for a long time that one region in the brain in particular, called the hippocampus, is really important for both forming new memories and uh, storing them, at least very vivid memories. Uh, And that work comes from work with amnesic patients who had damage to that region. Since we've been able to look at healthy brains and to put people in the functional magnetic resonance imaging scanner or fMRI, we now know that when you retrieve a memory and when you code a memory, it also recruits other regions in the brain. So it uh, recruits a wider network of regions that are all connected to the hippocampus.
0: Mm -hmm. And so is it very complicated when you run these fMRIs? Is it complicated for you to try and discern patterns of brain activity when, when we talk about the visual perspective in looking at Uh, your own eyes perspective versus an observer perspective, what is it that makes looking at these different perspectives so challenging from a researcher's point of view?
1: Yeah, well, one of the challenges here is that this is an internal process. So if I ask you to adopt an own eyes perspective or to adopt an observer perspective, it can be quite difficult for us to know that you're actually engaging with that task and that you're successful in doing that. And so that's where you know looking at the brain activation can help us because we can look at differences in the brain when you're engaging in that internal type of uh, process
0: mm-hmm. and how you you sort of touched on this a bit earlier in our conversation, but can you elaborate on the process by which we in fact? retrieve memories is, does it make a difference to your brain activity? What kind of a memory it is, uh, how significant it is, how uh, long ago the memory is from, what happens to our brain? What are the different stages through which we retrieve our memories?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there are differences depending on how that memory comes to mind. Um, So if a memory, some memories just seem to automatically come back to us in a really fast or kind of direct way. Um, versus other memories where it takes a little bit longer to get to them. You kind of have to generate some some details and really construct that memory again. And so we know that that can lead to changes um, in terms of regions like the frontal cortex that are involved more in uh, controlling our our memory and helping us to kind of put together the pieces of of the memory. Um, We also know that there are pretty big differences between recalling a very recent memory that has, you know, that rich sense of visual information, a sense of re-experiencing or reliving that particular memory that might be really fresh in our mind um, versus a more remote memory. And so Mm -hmm. what we're starting to see is that, uh, so there's actually been quite a big debate in the field about you know, which regions are involved in the brain in terms of recent versus remote memories with some people suggesting that the hippocampus was always involved for both recent and remote memories and other uh, researchers debating that no, uh, after some time has passed, other regions outside of the the hippocampus and the the neocortex come online. And more recently, Mm -hmm. people have suggested that, you know, regions like the medial prefrontal cortex, um, that connects with the hippocampus, that that actually might help us to uh, consolidate those memories and that through that process of uh, for going from a more re- recent to a remote memory, that that region might be more involved. And certainly for our very significant or emotional memories there, we might see regions like the amygdala becoming
0: very important. Right. I'm speaking to Peggy St. Jacques, who is an assistant professor at the University of Alberta. We're talking about the role of visual perspective in autobiographical memory retrieval. Now, this is something that you are able to study in a lab. Tell us a little bit about your experiment and what you were having participants do. Sure. Um, So what
1: we did in this particular study is we had people come into our lab and we asked them to retrieve uh, familiar locations that they uh, knew from their, their personal past. So like uh, your favorite coffee shop, your your home, and so on. And then uh, this was outside of the MRI scanner. And then we asked them to go into the fMRI scanner And we would present them with those familiar locations and ask them to recall a particular memory from their personal past. So something Mm -hmm. that occurred at a particular point in time. um, And that was a unique event that happened at that familiar location. Um, And Mm -hmm. in order to look at visual perspective, what we did is we asked them to retrieve the memory from either their own eyes or an observer perspective where they saw themselves in that event. And then once they had retrieved a memory, we asked them to indicate they had it in mind by pressing a button and then to continue to elaborate upon that memory for the rest of the trial. So they had up to about 20 to 30 seconds to do this.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's turn to your findings and and just the conclusions, because you have a fairly complicated statistical analysis that I'm just going to skip right over. But uh, tell me a little bit about what you actually found about the relationship between visual perspective, so the own eyes perspective versus the observer perspective, and what changes you might have noticed in the patterns of brain activity.
1: Yeah, so what we found in this particular study is that when you adopt an observer perspective, it really changes the entire retrieval process. So, And those changes happen very early in the process. So within the first couple of seconds, where you're trying to find a memory in uh, a particular memory. And what we found in particular is that there's greater interaction between the hippocampus um, and another network in the brain called the posterior medial network. And in particular, mm-hmm. we found greater interactions between an in, the most interior portion of the hippocampus. So it's kind of the a subregion of the hippocampus that's right at the front of it. And that's a region that we know helps us to combine and integrate details. Um, and so that region was connected more to this posterior medial network which uh, has been linked to our ability to build an imagined event in our mind's eye. And so mm-hmm. what we think this suggests then is that when we adopt a different viewpoint on our memory, that's really changing how the way that we reconstruct or put
0: together our memories. It's allowing us to see the, the memory in a new way, literally. My name is Juita Gupta. And with me today is assistant professor from the university of Alberta, Peggy St. Jacques. Peggy, one of the things I've been wanting to ask you about your research into visual perspectives is what happens to memory retrieval if, let's say, we switch perspectives. So I, I, I'm i asked to retrieve a memory from an own eye's perspective. I'm then asked to retrieve the same memory uh, from an observer's perspective. And then let's say I switch back to an own eye's perspective. Do I gain or lose information along the way?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so there's a lot of things going on there that might change in terms of the memory. We know that if you switch from an own eyes to an observer perspective, what you're kind of doing there is almost distancing yourself a little bit from the memory. So you're kind of taking a step back, seeing yourself in the event. And that can lead to sometimes a reduction in the emotions that you feel. We also mm-hmm. know that when you adopt an observer perspective, it can reduce the vividness of the memory. So, um, because really you're you're retrieving it from an entirely brand new viewpoint that you haven't necessarily experienced, and so it might be more difficult to to retrieve the 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 v- rich visual information that allows you to re-experience from your own eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's really interesting is that when you switch back from observer to own eyes, you don't necessarily gain back those, those aspects of the memory. So you might actually be losing something about the memory over the longer term.
0: That is an astonishing finding because I would have thought you would have just regained what you had previously lost. In any case, a couple of times in our conversation, we've talked about the role of emotion. And I really wanted to focus on that a little bit. Because if you were to ask me to tell you my routine the morning of my wedding, which took place quite a number of years ago, I can remember that clearly. If you were to ask me my morning routine a week ago, I have no recollection whatsoever. (laughs) And I think that's quite a, a common phenomenon. So tell us a little bit about the role of affect or emotion on memory retrieval
1: yeah so it might actually start when you're initially forming the memory because we know that emotion can uh, uh, work with our our brain in terms of the the hippocampus so the amygdala and the hippocampus work together uh, to support the formation of memories that are highly emotional Uh, when we retrieve them you can also have that emotional experience that's that's brought back and so emotion can help us to better form the memory and to consolidate that, that memory, and also to later retrieve it. Of course, with that, one thing we need to consider there is that you often also rehearse memories that are more significant, more that have that emotional flavor to them. And so that may also
0: enable you to preserve them over the longer mm-hmm. term the one of the things i said in my opening essay off the top of the program is that our memories really our memories really do define us and i think part of that defining of the self is having a cohesive sense of self over time what does the way in which we recall memories do and how does it influence rather the ways in which we actually think about ourselves and the evolution of the self over time
1: yeah absolutely so you know um when we take a step back and kind of see ourselves in the memory ha- adopting that observer perspective um that can really make it feel like those memories maybe aren't really so much part of ourselves anymore and so it can really change that that interaction between um the you know the self and that particular memory perhaps making it more less salient in in one's
0: life mm mm-hmm. We were talking just a few minutes ago about imagining um, different scenarios, and I really wanted to go back and revisit that conversation with you because there's a couple of ways in which we can let our minds imagine, right? We can reimagine past events, uh, an alternative to what actually happened on a particular day, for instance, or we can imagine, you know, fast forward into the future. So what happens to our visual perspective in those recollections and what happens to our brain activity?
1: Yeah. So when we think about the future, what we know is that you see a lot of the same patterns of activation in the brain as when you think of events from your personal past. Um, but yeah. what's really interesting is um, um, in terms of the, the viewpoint is that for future events, what we often see is that people tend to have adopt more of this observer perspective, one reason may mm-hmm. be that when we think of events that are going to occur in the future, we have less of those rich kind of uh, visual information to help re- like to adopt an own eyes viewpoint for them.
0: hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to turn a little bit about and, and talk to you a little bit about some of the applications of your research because this has been really fascinating, but I think a lot of us are wondering, well, how does this apply to my life? Um, one of the ways in which we hear a lot about autobiographical memories, you know, you watch any uh, you know sci-fi show or whatever, um, and they'll talk about eyewitness accounts. And I'm wondering if your research can do anything to improve Eyewitness accounts or improve the reliability of eyewitness accounts?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think one thing that is important for us to look at is how the role of shifting our visual perspective. Um, So Mm -hmm. in some of our research, what we've shown is that when you shift from an own eyes to an observer perspective, that can actually reduce the accuracy of those memories. And we know that it already reduces the amount of visual information in our memories. And so in terms of eyewitness memory, something that uh, we like to do or or use to support more accurate eyewitness uh, memory is something called the cognitive interview. And this is a, a procedure that's been developed um, to try to get at the most accurate uh, memory for in the eyewitness. Um, but one of mm-hmm. the aspects of that is they ask people to adopt different perspectives. So imagine you're you know you're an eyewitness to a holdup at a at a store, and now take the perspective of the you know the shopkeeper or something like that. Um, but our mm-hmm. research kind of shows that that could potentially reduce the accuracy of those events. And so I think we need a little bit more research here to better understand that effect.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm speaking to Peggy St. Jacques, who is an assistant professor at the Department of Psychology at the University of Alberta. Sticking with some of the application of your research, uh, we know that there are a lot of uh, mental disorders. And so I'm looking now at asking you about some of the clinical applications. Are there things like depression or anxiety that might be treated if we better understand the formation of memories and their retrieval? Yeah, absolutely. So
1: um, in terms of lots of mental disorders, what's really interesting is that they often have impairments in the perspective of their memory. Um, So Mm. if we think of something like PTSD, for example, often when people think back to those trauma memories, they tend to adopt more an observer perspective on those events. And so it's interesting Mm -hmm. because the idea that adopting a different perspective can serve an emotional regulation uh, process, it can reduce the amount of negative emotions that people feel. But on the other hand, you know, it doesn't seem to be working so well uh, with people with Mm -hmm. PTSD because they're still experiencing those emotions and so, I think we still have a lot of work to understand the role of perspective not only when we retrieve memories and remember, but also potentially when we're initially forming those events um So do we kind of experience uh you know some a good example of this is when you give a public uh, speech. Sometimes you're starting to think about, oh, how do I look like from the, you know, the audience's perspective, and you're starting to get nervous and anxious, and you're almost adopting an observer viewpoint during the Mm -hmm. formation of that event. And that's the piece of the puzzle where we don't quite have a lot of information yet.
0: Right. those almost those out-of-body type of experiences, right? Um, Let me ask you a little bit. I I know I'm going out on a limb here, but I'm going to ask you anyways. Uh, We, I think all of us know people with dementia. Uh, We know that it's uh, something that is growing in severity, Um, lots of people affected by it. Do you feel that some of your research might help to slow down the spread of dementia or even reverse dementia? Is there something in the way in which we ask people to recall that might Make a difference to people living with dementia? Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I mean, I think in
1: terms of visual perspective, there's still a lot we don't know about how that changes as we age. There's only a few studies that have looked at this question, and they've kind of suggested that, you know, just even in healthy older adults, that there's already some changes in the ability to adopt these different perspectives. So I think we still have a lot of uh, work to do there.
0: Mm -hmm. Throughout this conversation, we've talked about visual perspectives. Um, So let me pose another question to you. I mean, I am blind. Uh, A lot of the people listening in the audience might also be either fully blind or uh, partially sighted how do we understand visual perspectives when we think about people who are blind or partially sighted? Does it change the way in which we recall memories? Do we know if there are different brain patterns that are activated? What can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we know that visual imagery um, is so important for our ability to retrieve autobiographical memories. Um, And Mm -hmm. there is some work showing that, you know, people who aren't able to recall, you know, to have visual images in in the mind's eye, that they show impairments. They're not able to re-experience or remember those autobiographical memories as deeply as somebody who does have that ability. Um, I think it's there's still a lot of work to do in that area as well that's quite fascinating uh, to understand. Um, And I'd be curious whether about you, whether you have a a viewpoint when you think about your own memories of the past, and there may be multiple, you know, ways that we can get uh, to viewpoint that don't even require perhaps uh, visual imagery.
0: Well, that was my point exactly. Because yes, when I okay, so I was reading over your paper, and I was thinking back to my own memories, and I do tend to experience them from an own eyes perspective. And there is a degree of visual information that I get, but it's maybe not detailed as someone with 20-20 vision. But maybe there's a, a, a way in which we can explore, because I can almost remember things like uh, the heat on my skin or the sounds in the room. So is there a, a room here for further exploration and research?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's one thing that we're quite interested in our lab is understanding kind of the individual variability here, because, you know, not everybody uh, has great visual images. And how does that impact then the, the viewpoint of the memory and, and more widely the memory itself in
0: terms of how we're able to recollect? Well, it has been really interesting, dare I say memorable speaking to you. Thank you very much mm-hmm. for being on the program. Uh, thank you so much for having me. That was Peggy St. Jacques, Assistant Professor at the Department of Psychology at the University of Alberta and Director of the Memory in Events Lab. We talked about her paper that uh, looked at the relationship between visual perspectives and the retrieval of autobiographical memory. I would like to remind you that if you'd want to go over our podcasts for this episode, as well as any of the episodes we've aired in the past, you can find them on your favorite podcast platforms. This is such a fascinating area of research. There are so many wide-ranging impacts for people, everything from the ways in which we treat dementia, clinical depression, and so many research possibilities as well. What does it mean for the recollection of memories for people who are blind or partially sighted? So I really enjoyed my conversation and I would encourage you to head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'll have a few remarks there as well. I'd like to thank Peggy Saint-Jacques for being on the program today. Thanks also going out to our content development specialist, Jim Crisco, who sent the story our way. Our technical producer for The Pulse is Nasreen abdul Majid, Andy Frank is the manager of AMI Audio, and Paula Janine is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.
1: Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.